out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's the turn of the bassist, Adrian Shaw, or Aid Shaw, who has been around <clears throat> for decades. Indeed, he has. Um, played with Hawkwind and also is a member of the Hawk Lords, but has um, more recently been working with Bevis Frond. And um, yes, a million other bands, actually. So I won't bore you with that because we're going to get down, down to that with this interview. We are, aren't you lucky, dear listener? So um, after several minutes of casual chat in his room in London, he had a lot of guitars, by the way, which we probably talk about a bit later on. Um, we get down to that very exciting subject that was, yes, you've guessed it, the early formative years. I think we're going to go right back to the beginning of rock and roll. Anyway, Aid or Adrian to his friends. Um, take it away. I think it was, well, I'm, I'm old enough, <laughs> sorry to say, um, to remember rock and roll actually starting. Yes. Uh, yeah, I was born in 47, so when it kicked off in, what, 1956 or 57, um, I was, you know, I was always aware of music, and uh, when rock and roll came, I just loved it, you know, and still do. Yes, well, I, well, I, I suppose my, my sort of some of those heroes, you know, I know that's sometimes a bit of a dirty word, is kind of John Peel, who I thought was great, but there was also David Bowie, who I mentioned earlier, and also Lemmy, and they were, I think they were born the same year, and whenever they were asked about their, their early musical influences, kind of separately, they would both say Little Richard, and then they would say all the other bands like Elvis and Eddie Cochran and Buddy Holly and people like that. So was did you have kind of moment, you know, a moment like that with somebody? That's a bit of a leading question, isn't it? Like Little yeah, Richard. No, I think, uh, yeah, I think I'll go with Little Richard, actually. Uh, I've never heard anything like that. And to this day, I still haven't. You know, I think he was the, the greatest of the rock singers. And uh, as soon as I heard that, it sounded so exotic because... I've been brought up on a diet of, you know, post-war English music or American music, for that matter, was ghastly. You know, so much was that doggy in the window and the show tunes and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, hearing Little Richard straight out of a Southern Baptist tradition, it, it just sounded fantastic. Yes. And what were your, and where were your parents? Where did they live during, obviously, the Second World War, just finished when you, you were born? Where, where did you grow up? Uh, all over the place, actually. My, my dad was a refugee. He was uh, a Jew from Vienna, who, um, a long, complicated story, but he managed to get out. Um, and then he met my mother, who was a London girl. And uh, so my first memory is uh, Notting Hill, when I was very young, we lived in Notting Hill. Then we moved to a council house in um, Hutney. Then we moved to Wembley. And uh, at that point, I left home and moved to Maida Vale. Um, Maida Vale, my God, the famous Maida Vale. Did your dad sort of come over to the UK during the war, or was it sort it, of... A very brief crazy. He He was a... Uh, socialist and fighting the fascists and there was a lot of street fighting in the 30s. Um, he ended up in Dachau and Buchenwald but uh, through some political amnesty before it was a crime to be a Jew 
he uh, he got released. Um, his parents ultimately died in the camps, but he then uh, got smuggled out of Austria, uh, ended up in France and joined the French army until they were overrun, and then got to the coast, thought he was getting on a boat across to Dover, but ended up stoking coal around the Med for some months until he finally docked in England and got arrested as an enemy alien, put in one with scrubs. Oh, my God. So what year was that? Oh, well, that was... Uh, well, obviously, whenever the French army got overrun, it would have been shortly after that, I'm afraid my... Yes. It isn't terribly clear. I really should know this, but I don't. No, but was was that quite, I mean, did he, was that quite an influence on your childhood? He's kind of, because not many people's parents had that kind of story and, and grandparents. Like so many, he didn't really talk about it a great deal. Um, later on, when I got older, I, I got the details, but um, he just got on with things like people did in those days, you know, got on, had a successful life in England. Uh, two kids, me and my sister, and uh, yeah, did okay for himself. Yes, cheesy crazy, that is amazing. So you were at that perfect age during the birth of the 60s of, of kind of really seeing it and feeling it kind of happen, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, as I said, I was just fascinated by rock and roll. Um, and then when I got a bit older, I, I got a guitar when I was about 12 or 13, and. Bert Whedon's playing the day book, and uh, a real misnomer, incidentally. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good old Bert. Well, it's funny, because I just did an interview with a much younger person who was in a Norwich band in the 80s and still does music, and he said his first ever gig was going to see Bert Whedon at the Chroma End of Pier <laughs> show, and, uh, you know, that had, he said he didn't know why his dad took him, but it had a massive influence on the rest of his life, and he, you know, got the book, and Kind of learnt some chords and became fascinated ever since. Uh, growing up in Kings Lynn, then ending up in Yarmouth and then Norwich. So, um, yes, Bert Whedon, you can't knock him, can you, really? Well, I can, actually. I'm surprised that it didn't put your your friend off for life. So, <laughs> I mean, really, his book was wonderful, you know, if you needed to learn the chords, which I did. But my memory of Bert Whedon is him on British TV with kind of a shiny suit, corrugated hair, uh, a grin, and playing bloody awful guitar. I really <laughs> think it was a guitarist, but we, I thought it was awful. But, yeah, that's just my <laughs> my personal opinion. Yes, well, no, that's, that's always good to, it's always good to sort of, you know, put your flag to the mask and all that. So when did your, when did a guitar appear in your childhood? I think I must have been about 12 or 13 when I, I got a, Initially, a Spanish guitar, gut strung, and then realizing that um, all the rock and roll people were playing steel strings, I, I restrung it, and of course, without a truss rod, the neck bent like a banana. So then I, I moved on to a, a proper steel strung guitar, a very cheap one, and gradually, fortunately, the folk boom came then, and I, um, got very into that. I was buying Dylan's records as they came out and so on. And uh, going to a lot of clubs and things. And, uh, and then it was only after that I joined the first group in 1967. Uh, it was, well, once again, a very convoluted story. But basically it was a dope dealer 
was writing lyrics and wanted musicians to um, to put them to music. And a friend of a friend put me in touch with him. And, uh, and eventually we ended up with three guitarists, uh, me included. And so someone had to switch to bass and I was a novice. And that was me. Yes. And did your and did the dope dealing songwriter? But I had to say Robert Hunter from the the Grateful Dead was probably could have put that on his CV as well. Was was he a good lyricist? Actually, he was. Yeah, he was a very good lyricist. You can hear his lyrics on the album. Actually, came out. I mean, I recorded an album before I ever done a gig. Did you? Um, yeah, um, the album's called JP Sunshine. It's very sixties and it's home recorded and so on. But it's kind of of its time, and it's, it's not bad, really. Yes, well, I've, I've seen some amazing clips of the young Al Stewart in some sort of coffee bar playing folk music, and also put a very young Paul Simon in Norwich at a sort of pub playing kind of, I suppose, folk-related music. And then you had people like Bert Yanks, didn't you, and Davy Graham as well, who had that amazing musical song, um, which goes on for about three, two minutes, but it's the most incredible chord fluidity that you've ever heard in your life. Yeah, it was fantastic, David Graham. I, I never actually saw him. I saw Paul Simon live at that time, 1963, I think that was. Yeah. I saw at Wickham Town Hall. And uh, I saw Bert Yanks too at uh, various gigs. And a whole slew of other people. Phil Oates was my big hero. And uh, oh, I saw him. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and what did you make of, you know, obviously you were there when you could hear the first sort of Beatles records and the Stones and obviously going through, but there was also people like yours, sort of Jeff Becks and Jimmy Page, you know, the young Jimmy Page and people like that. So was it just a period where you, you know, anything felt possible? Yeah, I'd say, well, I saw Jimmy Page in a very early incarnation, a band called Neil Christian and the Crusaders, I Saw him at Wembley Town Hall when I was about 15, I think. And uh, uh, not that I knew it was Jimmy Page at the time, but I've only found out subsequently. <laughs> and, uh, and the Beatles, I used to, when I was meant to be doing my homework, when I was, I guess I would have been 15, just before I unfortunately got expelled from school. So, but I nearly got to do my O levels, which they were at the time. And I, he used to have uh, the radio on listening, listening out for anything new when I was meant to be doing my homework. And I heard Love Me Do come on, and that just struck me immediately. I, uh, I used to write down on little pads stuff I liked so I can go and kind of get it later. And, yes. Uh, this felt the Beatles, of course. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I was always listening out for the next kind of new thing and they were coming thick and fast at the time yeah did you did you have a feeling because you were obviously at the right age for this of that kind of shift of kind of music and culture and politics happening because from sort of 63 64 until 67 you know not many years you we'd become full-on into the psychedelic world and then there was the the was it the 24-hour or 14 hour Technicolor Dream at the Alley Pally with people like Soft Machine and Pink Floyd and Yoko Ono doing her stuff. And, and also John Peel was doing his Perfume Garden on Pirate Radio. I just wondered if literally every month things were getting brighter and more kind of psychedelic in your life. I was at the Alley Pally thing incidentally. Oh, that must have been such an amazing blood, blood, 
blast. Yeah, it really was. Um, uh, and John Peel, I used to let everyone listen to John Peel who had any taste at all. <laughs> yes. That's when I first heard Captain Beefheart, for instance, who I instantly I saw in a pub in Harrow. Um, I guess that would have been about 66, very, very early. You wouldn't believe it, but there was a Matai Farm cottage in Harrow had Captain Beefheart and his magic band. Um, honestly, you couldn't make it up. It's just so, so bizarre, so unexpected. Yes, well, absolutely. Did I was was John Drumbo French in the band at that stage, or was he? I think he he was a bit later, wasn't he, Drumbo? I would imagine because he he couldn't have been that old. I have interviewed him a few times when he came with the Magic Band and did some dates. I don't know. In the last ten years, he did a couple of tours with the Magic Band, and um, yes, and and yes, he. His experience was a bit sort of. I think it's left him emotionally wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> I love Beefheart though. Is uh, we're the same school as Frank Zappa, and there must have been something in the water. Yes, absolutely. There was there was something quite off the wall on that front. So then, when do you when you got your first band together? Um, was it JP Sunshine? How long did that last? Oh, until the uh, dealer got bust, and then it all fell apart. And uh, at that point, um, the guitarist had been recruited by Arthur Brown to go and join the remnants of the crazy world. It's after Vince Crane had left and uh, and, um, and uh, Keith, not Keith Emerson, um, Palmer. Um, God, my brain's going. Carl uh, Palmer. Carl Palmer, yes. And he um, he got a he got offered the gig with Arthur and had been going to live in Puddletown in Dorset. And uh, a bit later, I got a phone call saying they needed someone to drive them around and would I do it? So my wife and I relocated there. And uh, a bit after that, Arthur got fed up with the bass player and asked me to join, um, which I was only too happy to do. But then the, that all fell apart because Andy and the drummer, Drayson Pika, for some reason, took against Arthur and made his life a misery to the extent he he went back to London, uh, kind of leaving us <laughs> uh, rudderless in uh, in Dorset. Blimey! So were you living because in that state it phase in life there was a lot of kind of people moving to the countryside and the the great commune movement had started and people wanting to get back to the land and thinking it was a good idea to. To live in shared houses. I know a few years later there was the Global Village Trucking Company who all oh. went and moved into a house together, which obviously um, you know what you know, the outcome's always going to be the same, isn't it? Really, but but there was that kind of sense that we were going to. But you know, were you feeling particularly political at that stage as well? Well, I, I, at that stage, not so much really. Apart from we were fairly kind of anti-establishment, like everyone was. But uh, before that, I've been a member of CND and the anti-apartheid movement and so on. Uh, but then when the drugs took over, <laughs> she kind of worried less about that kind of thing. And uh, it was more just kind of, quite honestly, it was just hedonism, just enjoying ourselves. It would have been hard not to really, wouldn't it, at that stage? And also, I do remember there was a fantastic bit of um, the Glastonbury Festival from 1970, I think, or the very early one with Terry Reid. And there was a young 
Linda Linda Lewis suddenly appeared doing some singing. You also she was also part of a band that you were in as well, wasn't she? Actually, she was part of a band that Andy, the guitarist in JP Sunshine, who went on to Arthur Brown, he was in a band with with Linda. I, I was at the first Glastonbury too. In fact, the band I was in were playing there. Um, just just as it happened. Um, but Linda Lewis was in a band, well, actually, with, when Arthur went off to, um, back to London, we got the singer from J.P. Sunshine, who Andy, the guitarist, had worked with previously, Rob Goodway. Um, he came down to replace Arthur. Well, that's a theory of it anyway. And uh, he and Andy, uh, and Pete Padley, High Tides bass player, who was also the big adult at that time with us, well, near us. Uh, they'd all played with Linda in a band called, I think it was called Flower of Wisdom or White Rabbit. There were two bands they played in. I'm not quite sure which was which. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's really kind of incestuous. Everyone seemed to know everyone else, you know. Yeah. And what was it like as a guitarist? I know you're on the bass, but when you suddenly started hearing the the Jeff Becks of this world, and then obviously, you know, Hendrix, who, you know, suddenly appears walking on stage just to jam with the cream, you know, with cream, who were at that stage looked upon as these like, wow, you can't do that. And Hendrix comes on and does killing, killing, <laughs> whatever, I can't remember, killing, killing floor, I think. And, and sort of everyone just goes, oh, right, something's just shifted. <laughs> you must have sort of thought, you know, with your Burt Whedon moments and your folk moments, oh, something's become a little bit technicolour here. Yeah, very much so. When you think that in the 10 years that rock and roll had been around from the earliest stirrings in, say, 56, up until when Hendrix put his first album out, it's only 10 years. You know, it's a blink of an eye nowadays for me, 10 years. Yes. But, yeah, the change was just ridiculous, you know, but it just seemed a natural evolution at the time. Yes, absolutely. And did it seem, though, because you were getting to that age and, you know, it's always a bit strange when decades finish. But in the in that particular decade, you know, you had, you know, Janis Joplin, Jim, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison. You had Altamont. You had the Charles Manson. You know, it must have felt I just wonder what it was like when it had that kind of moment of like, you know, the Monterey Pop Festival, early class raise lots of love ins. Hyde Park, although I know it was about Brian Jones, but then suddenly, you know, I did an interview once with Bar Barry Miles, who was part of the IT movement, and I sort of said, what happened to you in the 70s? He said, well, to be honest, we were just really tired. We just, we just felt like we needed a bit of a break. And obviously, suddenly you got those kind of people I mentioned at the beginning, like Sweet and Slade and T-Rex and Gary Glitter, obviously, you know, and Bay City Rollers. I just wondered as a musician what it was like to see that transformation yourself. Yeah, I think... You're right, it, there was a feeling of that. I think everyone was, by kind of 71 or two, everyone was kind of pretty drazed. The drugs had changed. You know, originally it was just dope and acid, and and then harder drugs came in with speed and, you know, a bit of coke and a bit of this and the other. And, yeah, by the early 70s, I think everyone was just a bit tired. You know, we'd been partying for years, and... Uh, I think that's when the music changed, when the stuff like the band came in, more acoustic, more rootsy stuff. It was a kind of antidote to psychedelia. Um, it's just a gentler music, you know. And what was it like with people when you heard, you know, like 
Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and the Grateful Dead, I mean, as well as the band, did that sort of, did that resonate with your sort of musical feel? Yeah, very much so. I, I loved all, all three of those acts. They were all, uh, it's exactly that. The first Crosby, Stills, Nash album was so melodic and gentle. It just seemed to fit really well with everyone's mindset. And the Grateful Dead changed from their six-hour psychedelic marathons to Working Man's Dead and American Beauty and so on. It's another reflection of, of this kind of move to, I don't know, it's just slowing things down a bit and taking a deep breath. Yes. Yeah. And learning to edit a song, really, wasn't it? I mean, um, yes. I mean, I, those two albums, I just think, are absolutely beautiful. But um, Dark Dark Star requires a bit more patience, doesn't it, really? Yeah, but fantastic. <laughs> I, I, with that, it was weird because I... Um, the Dead didn't appeal to me immediately, you know, because, they, let's face it, they're kind of a bit ramshackle, a bit out of tune in places and so on. But I think it, I was tripping one day and uh, Live Dead was put on. And uh, I sort of thought, oh, I get it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the Dead after that, you know, it suddenly made, made more sense to me. Yes. And also there's, there's another one of my favourite songs of theirs is, I think it's called Cassidy, which is all about Neil Cassidy, who was Jack Kerouac's kind of friend on on the road as Dean, uh, Dean Moriarty, wasn't he really? So um, so then as the 70s progressed, there was the sort of the, the heavier sound with, um, you know, I suppose Black Sabbath was coming in and you had that kind of recording studio, Rockwell, is it Rockfield? No, Rockfields in, in the countryside of Wales. And then you had, you know, also you had prog coming in as well as, as the early punk period. And then there were bands like Hawkwind who had started doing their things. And then slowly, you know, a, a, quite a, a quite a harder sound. How did the 70s, that period from sort of the 71 to 75 feel for you? Well, just backtracking a little bit, uh, the band, after we left Dorset, Rod Goodway and myself and our ladies, we went up to Bristol where Rod had been living and formed a band called Magic Muscle. And it was very much a kind of hippie underground thing. And, and we ended up as Hawkwind's support band. Um, on the Space Ritual tour, and uh, we're pretty much into Hawkwind, you know, it was kind of very much in our neck of the woods musically, you know, we were kind of loud and kind of a bit psychedelic -y and so on, and they were kind of bushy and psychedelic -y and good light show and so on, and uh, it was through that that I got invited to join Hawkwind. Um, in fact, I got invited twice. I, I was invited when I was in Magic Muscle in about 72. Lenny had blotted his copybook again. And uh, Nick Turner and I think Dick Mick came down to Bristol to visit us and invited me to join the band. And uh, idiotically, I, I said no because I had a loyalty to Magic Muscle. And then Magic Muscle split up acrimoniously you know, less than a year later. So that was a bit of a mistake. But fortunately, I got asked again in 77. So uh, I was, you know, I knew a lot of, I knew the band and uh, it was an easy transition to make when, uh, when they finally asked me again. Yes, and with Magic Muscle, because all the albums, I've, I've been listening to some of them, The Pipe, The Hundred, 
100 Miles Below, Laughs and Thrills. Were these all recorded and recently reissued during the 80s and beyond? They're a real mishmash, I'm afraid. Um, there's not really anything that represents Magic Muscle properly in its prime. Um, stuff like the Pipe of Raw and the Grid, and uh, I think there's another one Rob put together from bits of live recordings, rehearsals, stuff recorded on cassettes, all sorts, you know, and it's not really representative of the band. And then we reformed and did uh, 100 Miles Below some years later. Right. So with Simon House on violin and uh, Twink on drums. Jeez, you're crazy. Simon House, I think he, pl he played he the was, Oh, he well, did. He was in High Tide and then Hawkwind and then David Bowie after that. Uh, that must have been I mean you have I mean did you then when you went into Hawkwind did you take over from Lemmy or was he or, or was, was it it was one in between actually um, Paul Rudolph was in between Lemmy and myself yeah uh, but funny enough I mean I knew Lemmy really well liked him a lot and uh, he um, Motorhead's first tour was supporting Hawkwind when I just joined the band and uh, we did have a bit of a strange conversation, I have to admit, before the first gig, because he, he <laughs> we were sat in the bar before anyone was in there. He said to me, oh, well, I guess you got what you wanted then, kind of implying that I'd always wanted his gig. But that was so not true. You know, I wasn't going to kind of defend myself, so I just said yes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, he was, um, he was a grown-up. He knew how things worked, but he was a good boy. I really liked Lenny. Yes, no, I mean, he, you know, it was always, it was always going to be tricky, and and that story about the tour was quite interesting. But interesting enough, I did an interview with Fast Eddie um, years later, quite a long, actually, just just before he died, actually, and then he he told me about how he got sort of kicked out of um, Motorhead, which was kind of horrible because it was that that whole thing with Wendy O. Williams and them doing this terrible collaboration and him not being into it. And I don't know, he just kind of got sacked from the band that he felt like that was his band as much as anybody's and had to sort of go home on his own. But, you know, I think years later, they all kind of apologised. So I think it was just, I think the, the the Motorhead machine, like any band, I think when they when you take off, you know, you have that one year sort of getting it together and then there's this kind of roar and then it doesn't stop. You know, you do one two three albums loads of tours you haven't stopped for probably five years everything's got a bit messy hasn't it yeah it does put people under a strain you even the best of friends get a bit sick of each other when you're on the road for months at a time and sharing rooms and uh, you know it can be a bit of a strain and yeah as you say with a bit of distance people you know you forgive and forget for the yes. most part. <laughs> I have a few down the years. <laughs> we all we all have one or two people that would still, you know, most people you I think the difference is there's some some relationships you take responsibility for what happened as much as anybody, you know. So you can move on once you do that, rather than just blame them. And there's a few people that you think, no, there was something that was a little bit nastier than just my responsibility. There was something, yeah. And that's that that's the one that's tricky to let go of, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're right. It's, uh, as I say, uh, things become, yeah, 
blown out of proportion quite often under extremists and uh, with a bit of, bit of distance you kind of realise it wasn't actually that important with one or two exceptions. I'd still happily smack in the mouth if I got the opportunity. No name, no petrol. I know, it's always nice, isn't it? Yes, so with Hawkwind, they'd done obviously quite a bit of work. So you, this was sort of, you said, 77 period. How long were you in, in the band? A uh, year and a half, I think, in the end. I was, I recorded, fortunately it was a really good time to be in the band because we did Quite Strangeness and Charm and then PXR5, um, which has got some, you know, good stuff on it. It was delayed for the Hawk Lords album between Quark and uh, PXR5, but came out after I'd left the band. Uh, I say left. <laughs> the band kind of dissolved around me in America and uh, uh, I found myself without a gig, which was you know, a bit of a shock. Yes. <laughs> you, get, you get over these things, you know. <laughs> so was the whole band just kind of sliding into oblivion? Yeah, I, I, well, Bob Calvert, as you know, most people know, was he had he was bipolar basically, and he became very difficult to work with. And you might know the story, but we were on the European tour and ended up leaving him behind because he was being so impossible. Yeah, so that's the story where the band all got up early in the morning in Paris, got on the bus, drove off, leaving him, and then you stop at the traffic lights and he catches up vaguely naked. Uh, well, he wasn't naked, but he what happened? Dave Brock was the instigator as usual, and he uh, he called a band meeting without Bob and said, "Look, we can't finish this tour. He's just out of control. Um, I think we ought to go home." And no one argued. Um, and that, it was awful. The next morning, we met in the lobby to get in the car to go back to the airport without telling Bob. And Bob suddenly appeared and said, oh, are we off? And we went, yeah. And he disappeared and we went and got in the car and drove off. But as you say, got stuck in traffic. He came legging up the road and was trying to get in the car. We all studiously just staring forward, trying to ignore him, and uh, left him with Jeff Dextra, tour manager, to get him home. Um, and I feel, to this day, I feel awful about that because you don't leave your friends behind when they're having a bad time. But you know, uh, that's what we did. That's you know, one of my regrets in life is that we uh, didn't behave better. But. Uh, but that kind of resolved itself, and then we went off and did an American tour. And it was on that tour that Bob was still kind of up and down. And I think Dave was fed up with it all. Simon was going off. He only did the first few gigs before going to join David Bowie. And uh, Simon King had some problems too, and got back in there. Basically, wasn't really a band. And, uh, and for contractual reasons, Dave wanted to. Um, get out of the contract. He uh, went with a different label with Bob and uh, formed a different band, you know, basically Hawklords. Yes. And then it of course a year or so later to Hawkwind again. Blimey, that is a, that is a, that's a tricky story. And um, yeah, so was Bob kind of a genius when he was on it? 
Yeah, he was he was brilliant. Great showman too. Really good performer, and uh, a terrific poet. He really was good. Um, untrained musically, but he uh, he was a natural musician. He was he he was a, a real talent. It's such a shame he went so early. Yeah, I mean, out of all the people you played with, would you say he was the most inspirational? Um, yeah, well, maybe I, I played. I played with a lot of really talented people. I've got to say. Um, I mean, Nick Salomon of Beverly Strong is the best songwriter I've ever worked with. Great guitarist too. Um, uh, it's been interesting playing with Nick. You know, I mean, we've become very, very close friends. And uh, I'd say he's probably as big an influence on on me personally. But Bob. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Because you won, because I did an interview with dear old Keith Christmas quite recently to find out more about what he was up to, which was quite another one of those kind of familiar stories, I suppose, of somebody who has that kind of everything takes off and then everything slightly crashes and then you end up sort of having to get part time jobs. So you, but you worked with, with Keith quite a bit, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I, I, he formed a band and asked me to play with him, uh, which I was happy to do. He's a good boy, Keith. Magic Muscle, in fact, moved out of Bristol to move into his farmhouse in Somerset. Uh, you know, kind of following on from what you were saying about it being a time when people used to uh, get it together in the country. He got it together, yes, because actually it was in. <laughs> Bizarrely, I did an interview with James Lascelles from the Global Village Trucking Company, and um, and Keith went, "Oh, I stayed in that house that they had uh, in Suffolk somewhere, in a horrible bed." And uh, it's like, oh, fair enough. He still hasn't forgot it from 1970 something. He said it was the worst bed he's ever been in. They were very much contemporaries of ours, of Magic Muscles. That is, we were on the same circuit as Global Village. Right. And I knew James's brother really well, David. He was, uh, he was a good boy. We call something like, I don't know, 11th in line to the throne or something. Yes, like, I, 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 there is something strange, but he, I think his brother, who went to, you know, he was back very young when he managed them, has gone into sort of the record business in a kind of a major way, hasn't he? I think he's, he's I don't know, he got up to the top of the, the world of, you know, commerce and creativity, I think, didn't he? So, um, and how did you find, you know, still sort of playing music during that time where you sort of, we, we had the sort of, the sort of that folk scene and psychedelic scene, then a bit of the glam, prog rock, and then punk comes along. Because I, again, it was one of those kind of moments where a lot of people find that quite a difficult one to, you know, navigate, so to speak. Yeah, I, I must admit, and this sounds, you know, I could easily rewrite history and would quite happily do so if I thought I could get away with it. But I didn't like punk at all when it came along. I mean, I, I didn't like prog, and not the later manifestations anyway, when it got so far up its own arse, you know, kind of disappeared. Um, and it was very much for rich kids, you know, unless you could afford synthesizers and double drum kits and so on. You, stand a chance I mean that was awful and punk was a refreshing change from that but I just didn't like the glorification of not being able to play particularly well and for me the best punk bands were ones who had been doing it for some while and was it the Stranglers yeah 
stranglers, the ruts, you know. Funnily enough, I was playing a Hawkwind gig in, um, in London uh, and Johnny Rotten was a Hawkwind fan, it turned out, in his earlier days. And uh, he, he came to see the show and he came backstage and, you know, I saw him and I thought, interesting, we'll have a chat. And he and I were chatting, sitting down chatting, and all of a sudden I became aware of Bob Calvert looming over us, listening in. And he tapped John on the shoulder and said, I don't know what he's talking to you for. He thinks you're rubbish. And I thought, oh, thank you, Bob. Uh, but to John's credit, he said, well, we are, you know, which kind of deflated Bob somewhat. Uh, <laughs> of course, since then, I've listened to Nevermind the Bollocks, and uh, it's a great album. Yeah. Yes. Well, it was interesting because... Um... Yes, Chris Bedding, um, yes, he, he was talking about his life and, and stuff, you know, and um, was saying that he, he demoed their first couple of songs, you know, and, and got something that sounded reasonably good to sort of try and promote them to the next level and get a record deal. So, yes, they were definitely, they definitely needed a lot of work. And obviously Chris Bedding did sort of help them quite a lot on their journey. Yeah, I think Glenn Matlock was a musician in, in the Pistols, wasn't he, really? He was the musician, yes. And Steve Jones did quite a lot, and Paul Cook were definitely, they definitely yeah. had the potential to do it. And, you know, they were just, they got that and, and some good work. And there was a series called, I don't know, Classic Albums, and they had Never Mind the Bollocks. And I can't remember who the engineer producer was, but he was obviously a very professional person who could sort of get a sound which sounded brilliant. And when you listen to it now, funny enough, it does just sound like perfect pop in the way that, you know, ABBA does, you know, like Dancing Queen or, you know, as I often say, it's a bit like the Monkees meets the Stooges, you know, Iggy Pop Stooges. It's kind of got that kind of beautifully crafted song, but with that energy of sort of, you know, Iggy Pop and the Stooges. And you put that together and you've got good, you know, two and a half minute tracks, haven't you? Good combination, you know, with Johnny Rotten kind of tagged on the front, you know, you can't take rides off him, or you couldn't. It's a shame. <laughs> kind of advertising butter and uh, whatever else he's done. A bit of a letdown, really, but there you go. Yes, I know. Never never trust those heroes, really. They, <laughs> they often they often become quite disappointed. Well, I became a Smiths fan in the 80s, and that's quite that's that, that's a really difficult one for me with dear old Mozart, anyway. So then, so as, as the sort of... When, when did you find Bevis, then? When did that sort of come into your life? Well, that, once again, was my very old and dear friend, Rob Goodway. Um, he, got, he was living uh, in the country still, and I was back in London, and he got in touch saying, you really ought to meet this guy. He's a great musician, psychedelic guitarist, songwriter. Like you, he's into his football, uh, family man. Um, why don't you give him a bell? So I, I phoned Nick up and said, I'm told I ought to talk to you because we've got a lot in common. And, uh, and so we decided to meet down the pub and we did and we got on really well and everything went on from there really. He, uh, he didn't gig at the time, but the reason he got into gigging, he had gigged a lot with previous bands, but kind of only ever awful pub gigs where people were throwing stuff at them and so on. And um, 
I got a phone call from Doug Smith saying, would we play Hawkins Magic Muscle? This is a 25, 25th anniversary show at the Brixton Academy as was. So I thought, yeah, I mean, I know Rod will be into it. And uh, but our guitarist was in America. Uh, our drummer had given up drumming. Um, so I asked Nick if he'd do it. And to my amazement, he did and brought along his drummer with him. And we did a combination, really, a few of Nick's songs, some Magic Muscle stuff, and it went down a storm. And I think Nick suddenly went, oh, it's kicking larks. Yeah, OK. No one threw anything. <laughs> so was the Bevis, did that start in the mid-80s? Uh, Early-ish 80s, I'd say. Um, yeah, I think. No, 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 sorry. No, early 90s. Early yes. yeah, that's why I think whenever you can work it backwards um, from whenever Hawkwind started in what uh, ooh, I'm just trying to do some maths here. When did Hawkwind start? About 70, 71. So yeah. in that case, it would have been early to mid 90s, I suppose. Oh, okay, then. And uh, after that, we did a European tour as the Magic Bevis Muscle Front, really catchy name. And uh, and then we started going out as the Bevis Front, and Rod left, and uh, the drummer left, and we've had a succession of other drummers and guitarists since. I think we're on drummer number five now or six. Yes, it was a bit like Spinal Tap on that, isn't it? So Very much. So with, with, you know, any sort of career, especially in music, which is quite tricky, I did notice one little sort of trend, and that was especially in the 80s, which is a decade that I sort of grew to love because of being at the right age, I suppose, at that stage. But I did notice that some artists who had done fantastic stuff before then kind of struggled when they went into the 80s. And I'm thinking of people like David Bowie and Robert Plant, in my mind anyway, and... I don't know. Um, there was a few others. Oh, yeah, Rod Stewart. People suddenly kind of seemed a little bit like, oh, I don't know what to do. And they weren't going to be sort of on this sort of, I suppose, indie scene and, you know, the John Peel show because they had been around for too long. But they kind of got the, you know, the production sound of the time, which was kind of quite popular. And they seemed to be following trends more than sort of leading. And then obviously, you know, they, they find themselves again a few years later. How did you find the 80s, having sort of been playing music for nearly 15 years and been in, you know, as you said, um, various bands, including Hawkwind? Uh, well, I had a hiatus in the 80s. I mean, not, in, not entirely for those reasons, so I guess partly. But when, uh, when I got back from the American tour where Hawkwind broke up, my intention was to move to America because I made some contacts on the West Coast and I loved it over there. And being a British musician um, was still a, a kind of in then. Um, yes. I thought I could easily get a gig over here. Um, but before I got a chance to say that, my wife told me that she was pregnant with, with what turned out to be our son. And I thought, well, it's not the right time to move to America with no medical insurance or anything. So, um, and being a kind of responsible kind of person, well, I suddenly found I was responsible. I've never been previously. I, I thought, I've really got to do the right thing here, step up. And it's too precarious being a musician and trying to raise yes. a family. 
So I I quit music for about I guess it was best part of ten years, maybe not quite that long. But I became a London bus driver, which was a bit of a culture shock. Yes. So I did five years on that, and then a couple of years part time bus driving, and then got back into playing through circuitous routes and uh, been playing ever since. Yes, it does happen. I can't remember. Is it Vic? I can't remember. He became a postman. Is it Vic Goddard um, from the Subway Sick? He. Yeah, and uh, Jal Wobble was uh, on the uh, London London Transport on the trains, I believe. Yes. The track history of uh, people getting very prosaic jobs after doing, you know, kind of a. 10 years behind the mask sort of thing. Well, that's right. I think there's also quite a few who then sort of did a quick teacher training course and became music teachers. And um, for the same reason, you know, suddenly like a family appears and the relationship and then it's like, okay, I... And also feeling very disillusioned with music in the sense of like, well, I've fallen out with everybody I've ever worked with and in some cases were good friends with made no money so um there wasn't like there was much to walk away from apart from a damaged kind of um, emotional state and having to process that that kind of what what just happened as well as sometimes having a bit of a a habit of kind of either drugs or drink so it is you know i must admit doing these interviews makes me realize it's it's not it's not the easiest gig i mean it's not like working down the coal mine but at the same time it is a little bit of a number isn't it that's caused a bit of damage psychologically and physically. You know, I, I'm I'm just amazed that I've come out of this, you know, kind of relatively unscathed because I honestly it wasn't the case of looking after myself. I I uh, I was definitely uh, definitely someone for burning the candle at both ends for many many years. But I'm lucky I I got a good constitution and uh, I seem to come out of it okay. Yes, absolutely. So does that mean that you, you're sort of with Bevis as a sort of a permanent fe- fixture and feature ever since recording and doing other side projects and side hustles in your solo work? Yeah, basically. I, uh, Bevis is my kind of main gig, but I've been putting out solo albums. And at one point I was, I was playing in uh, Hawklord's uh, at the same time as doing front stuff, um, I had a couple of years playing with Hawklaws and did a few albums with them um, until uh, the usual uh, disagreements cropped up. And <laughs> so I stomped off in high dudgeon. So when did when did your sort of your your sort of to quote Jim Morrison, the end come with um, the Hawk Hawklaws? Uh, well, that. That was, oh, how long ago would it be now? I guess about five or six years ago, I I had a major falling out with Jerry Richards. Um, and uh, as I say, I kind of hoisted up my skirts and flounced off. Um, but we're good friends again now. Uh, you know, no hard feelings. It was like we were saying before. You know, everyone has their own agenda and you can, sometimes it coincides with yours, sometimes not. And when it doesn't, then you have to make a decision. And uh, and that was mine. Well, absolutely. And yes, 
patience and also you don't want to punch someone do you really not really so what was wait, did you play at the the barney bubbles uh memorial concert by any chance yes i did yeah yeah and um Herne bay was that uh which one was it i, I definitely did the, oh no that was at the 229 club wasn't it the barney bubbles yeah the one which was in 2011 which was um and that been that's been released on Black Widow Records, and you also did a, a Robert Calvert Memorial one, which is also well, that was a few years earlier, didn't you? That's right. Yeah, I did both of those. Yeah, because when I was first in Hawklaws, we had I was sharing bass studios with Alan Davy. Uh, we were kind of uh, it. It really wasn't a good idea. We uh, we'd do two or three numbers each, then after much manly hugging and high-fiving the other guy take over and then two or three songs later you go back and uh, it really was a very silly idea and so we uh, asked for one tour and then Alan was eased out and uh, I stayed on. You got the gig so it does uh, because Barney Bubbles obviously has become very famous with his work and I do believe somebody called Paul Gorman is going to be putting together a book or exhibition I might be slightly wrong about that, but there is a guy called Paul Gorman who seems to archive stuff. Was Barney somebody that you knew or sort of enjoyed his work? I certainly enjoyed his work. I, I met him, but I can't say I knew him. Um, but of course, he was responsible for the Atom Henge uh, stage set that Hawkwind had and a lot of their album covers and a lot of oh, all sorts of album, Elvis Costello covers. He, he was a very talented artist. Um, Amazing. Very awesome. It's not like we were friends or anything. We just, you know, kind of bumped into each other occasionally. Yes. And have you, how have you managed to sort of keep track of your kind of music and your archives? Because obviously, you know, there's your solo project, then there's the Bevis, and then there's all the other bits. Have you managed to some somehow sort of collate it all, or at least sort of have it so that one can sort of go, oh yes, this is this is your work, Ad. Uh, yeah, I did actually. Well, I've actually cobbled together my uh, discography and uh, if you go to my Facebook page you'll you'll see it on the top of it it's uh, it is quite I was amazed how extensive it is it goes on page after page I've played with a lot of people down the years I've just seen it I remember you posted it very recently and I remember thinking okay that's that's one hell of a musician yes this is this is fantastic <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but it's a it's a hell of a list. I wouldn't say I'm a hell of a musician, but you know, I kind of do my best. <laughs> That's one hell of a best, though, isn't it? Really. So when you did that, that, that there was at the bottom. You got Bowie and um, Boland and Bowie a tribute to the to the Mad Men, and that was a sort of triple CD box set. I mean, what was um, what was the idea with that? Uh, well, I got asked by Massimo um, from Black Widow. He was putting it together and asked me if I'd do a track of both. I mean, I wasn't particularly a Bolan fan, though, as you might know, I would have joined his band if he hadn't uh, ploughed into the tree. He was uh, he was putting together a new T-Rex and wanted me to join on bass, but unfortunately, uh, tree and mini collision kind of put pay to that. But, and that, that would have been just good timing when my Hawkwing did came to an end, so it would be very handy, but... Yes. Um, um, 
but nonetheless, I was happy enough to do a, a track of his for that album. And uh, so I did a very laid back Jeep stuff. Nice. And did you, um, did you get a chance to play with Mark at all? Because I know there's that famous TV piece with him and David Bowie where they're doing a little, the, the, the show was called Mark, wasn't it? And he slightly falls off the edge of the stage during, yeah. dur during the, the show. Well, I did, I did play on that show. Um, we did a track, uh, our single at the time. Well, it was actually, uh, yeah, it was Quark that we did um, on that show. And that's how come he was getting last me to join his band because he apparently took a, a liking to me. Um, but I didn't actually play with him, though I was in a band with Steve Cook, strangely enough, some years before. Um, and that was an interesting experience. Yes, that's a, that's. Have you sort of felt with with um, with a lot of the people that you've had been attracted, or they've been attracted to you? Um, there's there's kind of a creative madness there. Well, I think you've probably got to be mad to employ me in the first place. But it's a, I don't know. It's uh, you do what you know. It's David. You do what you do. You know. I'm professional. I do my homework if I'm in a musical setting. Um, and then, you know, after that, it's not too difficult. You just, uh, as I say, it really is a case of just doing your homework, knowing the songs. And it seems I've got a kind of a talent of some sort for playing the right thing. Yes, well, that's, that's one hell of a... It's one hell of a talent, though, isn't it? And, and an amazing CV. Do you have you been tempted, especially with that last, you know, sixteen months, going through your archives and thinking it'd be quite nice to somehow document? I'm thinking writing a book, basically. Have you been tempted to sort of write your story? Uh, yeah, actually, um, a guy called Ian Abrahams approached me about that several years ago, and uh, he wanted basically me to talk to him and he'd produce a book. And we started doing it that way. And then I thought, well, this, this is a bit convoluted. I think Ian found I wasn't quite as interesting as he had hoped. Or something happened, I don't know. Um, so we agreed to go our different ways. And I kind of finished it, actually, sort of. I have got it on my computer here. Um, so I have thought of doing it. And there's some... I think interesting and amusing stories there, because, you know, you can't be, how long have I been in? 50 years there? Yeah, over 50 years in the music. Over 50 years, yeah. Without having some interesting moments. Um, but then I kind of started recording again and put the book down and then lost the will to live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it is sitting there, and I do intend sometime... I, I was also a bit embarrassed about doing it, to be honest, because I thought, I get it when, you know, Pete Townsend does it or, you know, someone, you know, of real interest. But I thought my, my, my kind of approach to it was really um, the someone on the coalface of the music, music industry, you know, um, just someone who's made a living out of music and kind of done okay, but certainly nowhere near kind of stardom or anything. And uh, I thought it'd be it might be interesting from that from that aspect of because uh, everyone who writes books normally are huge stars. Yes, uh, 
there's another story to be told of the guy who can the fab like Bevis Frond, you know, we can tour whenever we like, we can we played all over the world, um put records out, you know, time after time. And a certain number of people love the band, love Nick. Um, and most people have never even heard of us. And uh, it shows, you know, that can be done. You can be big enough to work and be professional, but not big enough that <laughs> anyone's ever heard of you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I suppose what I found quite interesting, I suppose part of it's doing these interviews has been, has been also learning there's a bit more to the music world than, than, you know, as you say, the people that are the obvious names. And in a way, it's like, okay, that's their story. And we kind of know that story, but it's all the other people that are still have done it and are still doing it. And, and they've got that kind of, I don't know, there's kind of a side which you, you know, you think, God, I didn't know that happened. I didn't realize it was quite like that. And I think that's the story that becomes quite interesting, not just kind of anecdotes that, like, oh, I was in a pub, oh, and David Bowie walked in and we had a chat and David's a nice guy. But, you know, just talking about and analyzing what it's like to be a musician and those experiences and, and sort of being able to critique it slightly. So it does have a, a sense of like understanding what it is to go through that process and what states you're going through. That's my take. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. I but I have read a few which are a bit like, oh, I bumped into this, you know, a, a rather sort of unknown drummer in a band who possibly played with somebody famous once and they've kind of got their book out and you're thinking there isn't, there isn't much of a story, whereas your story is kind of, it's phenomenal, you know, it's almost like what you take out to, to condense it. But then it's like, well, actually, then it's the, way of being able to sort of critique it yourself and that I think is kind of that would would be interesting must, on, on my own if my opinion has any worth. Certainly does David and uh, maybe it will come out sometime. Well I hope it does I think it's always good there's I think the thing is there's just so many creative people that you know you just think oh that's just extraordinary story and as you mentioned you know there was um, you know Bebus as well I mean that's that's an amazing Kind of creative person so which yeah so just two questions what have you got lined up now for the next say 12 months well of course it's been really difficult with covid you yes. know we haven't done a gig in well, a long two years now i suppose unfortunately in that time my wife's been taken ill and uh, i'm not sure that i'll be able to gig anymore i really need to be at home to look after her so um uh, I I know it's, I've told Nick this, but he seems to be in a bit of a state of denial about it, but I really think I'm going to have to um, stop uh, stop going out on the road. It's a shame, I really wanted, I'm 74 now, but I really wanted to carry on playing psychedelic music until I was 80 live. It just amused me, the thought of it. <laughs> Possible. And I was well on the well on the way to doing it too but then uh, you know how it is life gets in the way and uh, so I think my gigging days unfortunately are over it's a shame because I can still do it I'm still kind of on top of things and it's just the uh, it's just yeah the way it is some things are more important than going out and making a racket yes this is also true yes that that moment 
And um, yeah, and do you have any kind of recordings that you're, you know, either solo or with Bevis? Um, yeah, I'm working on an album at the moment. I'm quite happy with it. I'm five track, I'm working on the six track at the moment. Um, so where I'm sat at the moment is my, my recording studio. The guitars, can you see guitars? And stuff and drum kit and keyboard. Um, we love the keyboard. Keyboards, nice old uh, uh, Farfisa organ. <coughs> there. Think, you can hardly see the floor for guitars, really. How many guitars have you got there? Really, I honestly, David, I couldn't tell you at the moment. I've got more in the house, too. <laughs> Can't have too many guitars. Right. Guitars over. Uh, yeah, my favourite is in the case over there, my EB3 that I've been playing since um, 19. Oh, well, it's a 62. I bought it in about 1970, I think. And it's been on virtually all the albums I've been on, just about every gig I've done. Uh, that's my baby. Uh, so, yeah, I love guitars. I love. All stringed instruments. I've got a band of likers, mandolins. I've got a banjo in lockdown, um, which I haven't learned yet, but I hope to at some point. Yeah, it's, uh, I right. just like it. music. It's got to be done. It's a good hobby. So look, or oh, good career. Well, it's just a good thing. But just last question: If you could have said something to your, say, 16, 18 year old self starting out in music, and you could have just kind of whispered a couple of things in their ears, something that you might say. Yes, do that, or actually just keep your eye on that. I just wondered if there was any, any kind of wisdom, worldly advice that you would have just imparted. Um, I think it took me a little while to get the courage up to sing. I think I would have said, you know, I, I'm never going to be a great singer, but I, yeah, I can hold a tune, I'm all right. And it took me a, a couple of years before I had the guts to sing, and I think I would have told myself to get on with it because it's all well and good being, you know, whatever your discipline is, bass player, guitarist, you know, but you need to do more, you know, you need to write, you need to sing. It's uh, stretch yourself, you know, don't be afraid, don't limit yourself to any one thing, don't think it's good enough to say to be a guitarist or be a bass player, it could be other things as well producer, writer, you know, it's not difficult, it's not really rocket science, it just takes a bit of confidence and I think I would have stressed that, you know, if he could do it, you could do it. Yes, yes, absolutely, amazing. Well, thank, well that's, that's fantastic, well thank you ever so much, Adrian, for giving me the time for this, and if you want, I can always, when I give it, uh, put it out, I can always send you a link and then you can put it on your Facebook page for your... Okay. Be delighted to, David. Yeah, thank, thank you. you for. Well, no, it's been great, and um, yes, thank you for the, for the for the hour. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to sort of uh, yes, discovering more of the work, and yeah, it's good, it's good. But look, take care of yourself, and I hope you hope to uh, yes, navigate all your ups and downs and stuff in as well. But um, yeah, okay. Well, thank you ever so much again. I really appreciate this. You're very welcome, David. Thanks for asking, and uh, thanks for asking interesting questions. You know, a lot of people don't. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, look.
that's cool have confidence and uh, yeah look forward to more music coming out hopefully from your basement i don't know is it a basement or a room suppose a garage garage okay beautiful okay take care have a lovely evening take care bye-bye nice talking with you bye bye now and that dear listener is a very waffly goodbye but anyway that's life and you just gotta embrace it all and a massive thank you to aid shaw for giving me the time for that interview uh, this has been the C86 show I've been, I've been, I'm still am really. David Eastall, yes indeed. If you want to contact me, I know, check me out. Make sure it's nice and positive if you can be bothered. And if you're not bothered, whatever, yes, if you don't want to be nice and don't bother. But if you want to be nice and just get in touch, touch with me, which is lovely, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. Also, all these fascinating interviews have been archived. And you can find those on Podbean. Spotify, iTunes. Yes, you can indeed. Look, have a great week. Stay safe.